0: So without further ado, I want to uh, proceed to introduce our distinguished speaker today. Uh, Andrew Pettigree is a, a name well-known to historians of the book. Uh, he's a professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews and is um, incredibly prolific. He's the author of over a dozen books on aspects of European history, the Reformation, and most recently, the history of communication. His study of the early, early news world, the invention of news, won Harvard University's prestigious Goldsmith Prize, which is awarded annually by the uh, Shorenstein Center for Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Kennedy School of Government. And it's not often, I think, that um, an early modernist um, is recognized by the Kennedy School of Governance at Harvard. Andrew's most uh, recent book is Brand Luther, 1517, Printing and the Making of the Reformation, which was published by Penguin USA in 2015. Um, Andrew is, is 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 one of those individuals who is an extremely effective networker, and I mean network in the best sense of the world. A word uh, who uh, is a regular um, uh, visitor to Dublin, uh, and is also somebody um, who ha- is extremely well connected in terms of making linkages between scholarship uh, in these islands and in North America. So we're very fortunate today to have somebody uh, as 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 knowledgeable and as scholarly and as as distinguished uh, as as Andrew. Uh, This is a lunchtime lecture, so Andrew's going to speak for 30 minutes. And then he's very kindly agreed to take uh, any questions you may have. So without any further ado, uh, uh, Andrew, may I invite you to take the podium?
1: Well, thank you all for that welcome. It's very nice to um, be in Dublin again, where I've been coming back and forth intermittently now for uh, about 20 years, I think, to work in the Dutch pamphlets in the um, uh, Fargo collection in uh, Trinity College. Uh, today, though, I'm not going to talk about Dutch uh, uh, business, uh, but I'm going to talk about the invention of journalism, which really relates to a project I, I finished a little while ago. In February uh, 2016, the British in- independent newspaper announced it would shortly abandon its print edition in future, the paper would be published online only. The loss of one of the UK's most respected titles naturally prompted a further round of introspection in the British press. When I first published the original English version of the invention of news, uh, this, many of the first reviewers were practising journalists. Naturally, um Rather than reading the book, they took the opportunity to offer their own reflections on their profession. Time and time again, in both reviews and media interviews, we came round to the existential question. What was the future of the professional journalist in this climate? Did journalism indeed have a, a future? Now, it's not difficult to find people who would argue answer this question in a negative. I read recently this well-respected book. That imagined a future for news without professional journalists. Instead, journalism as a craft would be overtaken by so-called citizen journalists. In an age where anyone can set up a blog and share their thoughts with the world, what precisely is the role for expensively trained news professionals? I should say at the outset that I do believe in journalism, and I do believe it has a future the experiment the extended experiment with free expression on news stories as anyone who reads the responses to a posted news story can easily attest has not been a striking success yesterday's citizen journalists have quickly morphed into today's internet troll brash ill-informed and frequently offensive but the question of the future of journalism goes straight to the heart of what journalism is The term journalist actually only entered the English language in the 18th century. Then it was a term of abuse. A journalist was a disreputable person, a pen for hire, someone who wrote to order for a political faction. Now, Samuel Johnson, who wrote this definition, was in fact one of those self-same people. He took money from Lord North for writing in the Tory interest. Now, of course, he has a towering literary reputation. A more more typical journalist of the day was the otherwise anonymous Mr. Taylor, paid 100 pounds for writing in various government-supporting newspapers in 1791. We know of Mr. Taylor only because this sum was entered in William Pitt, the prime minister's secret accounts. Otherwise, he makes no impact whatsoever on the record. He is, if you like, a typical journalist at the end of the 18th century. Well, from this, we learn two things. Firstly, that the very negative perception of journalism in the 18th century explains why it took so long for this to become a respectable profession. In England, for instance, it was still considered a disqualification to be writing for the newspapers from being a magistrate as late as 1841. Secondly, if this sort of writing was regarded as disreputable, it follows that there must have existed a standard of news writing against which this sort of work was measured and found wanting. In other words, in these negative perceptions, we can identify an embryonic code of journalistic ethics. Now, in investigating this embryonic code, I'm going to go back to the beginnings of a commercial market for news, the subject of my book, The Invention of News. Of course, the hunger for news has been a constant of human existence. I went on a family holiday uh, a few years ago and found exhibited these fantastic lost tablets, writing tablets from Vindolanda, the settlement on the Northern Wall, and these are, of course, news-bearing. They had a quite effective news service in the Roman Empire, but it's only really in the last five centuries that people have learned how to make money, how to commercialize the um, delivery of news, and it's the Italian merchants of the 15th century who were the first achieve this. In the 15th century, imaginative entrepreneurs began to explore how commercial um, merchant news services, which were mainly until that point being private, could be monetized. And they invented this, the Avisi. Now the Aviso was a manuscript newsletter service supplied on a regular basis once a week to paying customers. Each subscriber received something like this, and they received the same text hand-copied in a scribal office. In the course of the 16th century, these avisi became regularized throughout Europe. The Fuggers famously had an enormous collection. And they developed a very distinctive character for the presentation of news. Each report was short, normally, as you see here, one paragraph long, and they were all datelined with their point of origin. They offered news as a bald recitation of fact without editorial comment. And this style, news without comment, became the gold standard for news in the centuries I'm discussing and deeply influential for our concept of journalistic ethics. These were also amazingly persistent. This one dates from the end of the 16th century, 150 years after the invention of printing, and they were still the best source of news you could get in France on the eve of the French Revolution, by that point, several centuries after the invention of printing. First, however, these Avisi faced a significant challenge from another form of news medium. Now, it's the 16th century that first began to publish large quantities of print. This didn't initially go terribly well. Print was invented in the mid-15th century, but using the model inherited from the manuscript world, it was actually quite difficult to understand how to make money from it. So what happens is that print, instead of spreading rapidly through Europe, as is often thought, it quickly retrenched onto a few major centers of production based in central Europe, clustered along the Rhine and in northern Italy. Many of the early printers went bankrupt. In fact, bankruptcy is the normative experience of the publisher in the first century print. By the end of the 15th century, print badly needed a reboot. And it's rather like, if you like, the dot-com boom and bust of the 1990s, where people are prepared to invest tremendous amounts of money without much hope of return until they realize this is a stupid thing to do. That happened with print, and so you were left with a lot of bankrupt printers. The key moment in this reboot for print came in 1517 with Martin Luther. Suddenly, everybody wanted to hear about this extraordinary man and his outspoken uh, views. And Luther's works were soon in the hands of many men and women who had never previously bought books. And this is the key to the making of a new market. The publishing world was transformed. Publishers had learned how to make money from Gutenberg's invention. Now, when the fires of the Reformation died, publishers were now looking for some other way to keep this new generation of readers. And they did it by publishing news pamphlets. Now, these news pamphlets were modeled very closely on the Reformation Flugschriften. And they were also um, very different from the Avizi. They could be followed, published like this, as pamphlets. Here's one um, from 15, seven, 1557 with the characteristic title, Neue Zeitung. Zeitung, of course, now the modern German word for the newspaper. And here's another one, a, another German uh, report of the Armada crisis of 1588. Now, this is just a... Um, a piece of data I put together from our collected catalogue of 16th century books, the Universal Short Title Catalogue, which shows the growth through the 16th century, and then just a European comparison. What we learned from this is this, this pamphlet news is very different in different parts of Europe, Germany, the Low Countries, to some extent England, and a high proportion of vernacular publishing is accounted for for these works much less so in France and Southern Europe. Now, these pamphlets are very similar in stylistic terms to the Re- Reformation flugschriften but they were very different from the manuscript Avizi. The Avizi, as we've seen, were short, staccato reports provided by an informed professional gatherer, offered without comment or explanation. The pamphlet texts are very different, Usually there's a prose text devoted to a single event and written after the event had concluded. It's actually a much easier way to report news because then you can make it appear as if this was always preordained, it was exactly as you expected to happen, and you can offer comment and explanation. Now, by and large, these, and they were broadsheets like this, the horrible crime of Blasius Endres, the heavenly signs, these were very popular. These were not, generally speaking, written by professional newsmen. A lot of them were written by clergymen who could draw the appropriate moral lesson from a crime like this. So, news reaches the end of the cent- 16th century with two very clear but different traditions of news reporting. On the one hand, there are the avizi manuscript, expensive, factual. On the other, you get the pamphlets, which are discursive and um, much more entertaining. Now, this provides a context for the birth of the newspaper in the 17th century. And here is the very first newspaper, the Strasbourg Relation of 1609, published in a pamphlet like the news pamphlet. So this combines the two genres in one, in the sense that it adopts a pamphlet form, but it takes the Avizi style of reporting. Popular these newspapers may have been, but they were very heavy-going. The thing is that the Avizi published in very small numbers for subscribers who have paid heavy prices. You could assume that your reader could know what these reports meant. Who was Cardinal Barberini who had set off for Rimini? Did it matter? Was this a good thing or a bad thing? The people who subscribed to the manuscript newsletters could be expected to know. The new readers for these newspapers had more difficulty. And they had difficulty because the reports in these early newspapers were often taken verbatim from the manuscript commercial newsletters. In other words, they were mechanizing an existing service. Now, it's hard to fall in love with these early newspapers. They're so abstruse, they're so difficult now to understand. But they are exceptionally important for the development of what later became known as journalistic ethics. The, The traditional readers of the Avisi may not have demanded a high style, but they cared deeply that the news they received was reliable. They knew that the news published as pamphlets was often deeply partisan. Mostly, they brought broadcast only news favorable to their own prince or country. That might be good for morale but, and what people wanted to hear, but it was little use to those in the circle of power who needed to know accurate news for their own policy-making. The newspaper inherited the more careful, the more factual approach of the Avisi. When a report was not yet confirmed, then the language of the newspaper reflected this. It is reported from Vienna. Rumors from Rome tell us. It is said that the Duke of Orleans was wounded in the battle, but this cannot yet be confirmed. That was the style of the newspaper because of course they had to come out every week. They couldn't wait till the event was concluded. These early newspapers like this are essentially the creation of a single individual. The publisher received the incoming reports, redacted them into a continuous text, and dispatched it to the print shop. And very often they were also their own business manager, collecting the subscriptions, organizing a distribution, Uh, network, and so on. As the 17th century wore on, we see a steady growth of networks of correspondence, the place where these datelined reports are coming from. Here we have a page from a newspaper of 1629 with reports from Hamburg, Breslau, Rome, Venice, and Freiburg. Early newspapers from about this date normally have about eight or ten of these dateline reports. By the end of the century, by the end of the 17th century, they have as many as 25. Now, the best at this, as it turned out, were the Dutch. Amsterdam, we have an Amsterdam paper here, was one of the first places in Europe to have a competitive place. Normally, newspapermen went to their local government and asked for a monopoly to prevent another uh, newspaper being published there. But in Amsterdam, uh, this wasn't the case. Newspapermen found various ways to eke out a living. In the Netherlands, as I say, we have a truly competitive press. In England, on the whole, press uh, existed by taking subsidies from either the Whigs or the Tories. In Germany, they were often directly subsidized by the local prince. Obviously, such financial dependence did not encourage editorial independence. And all over Europe, and this is a characteristic, newsmen have a very, very um, sensitive and tentative approach to domestic news. These newspapers tend to be roundups of news from abroad, and they didn't tiptoe into domestic politics. Now, it's now more than 40 years since the German Marxist, Jürgen Habermas, laid out his vision of what he called the rise of the public sphere. Habermas's public sphere is firmly centered on the literate commercial publics of Europe's major trading cities and their coffee houses, the natural home of Europe's first newspapers. And we see here plenty of newspaper material lying about. It was in such places that Habermas believed there existed the conditions for a rational, critical, and genuinely open discussion of political issues. Now, to Habermas, the public sphere was naturally oppositional. By encouraging open debate, the public sphere also existed in tension with what Habermas saw as the natural tendency of government towards secrecy to making of policy behind closed doors. (coughs) Now, it's hard to see how Habermas's insight can be applied to the most early newspapers. The Paris Gazette, which we see here, was a cheerleader for the French monarchy, and the Dutch generally kept silent on local politics. But it would be wrong to think that newspapers only supported the government if paid to do so. It was in this period overwhelmingly in the interest of newspapers to be friendly to power, partly to ensure their own livelihoods against attempts to disrupt or close down production. The need for a newspaper to ensure con- con- continuity of publication is one reason why the pamphlet is a more natural vehicle for provocative political comment. You could publish a single pamphlet uh, without your imprint on it and then run away. If you had a newspaper, you had to have your name and address on every issue so that people knew where to come get it next week or where to pay their subscriptions. It's also the case, though, that a generally supportive stance or ignoring local politics was more likely to conform to the prejudices of their readership. Now, the large number of, the large sums dispersed to secure editorial support in 18th century London reflect one critical change in English newspapers at this time, the engagement with domestic politics and the rise of opinion. Opinion made its way into the press via the weekly advocacy pamphlets popularized by writers like Daniel Defoe. Now this was not really greeted as a leap forward for newspaper culture. In plunging into party politics, often with extraordinary rudeness and vituperation, newspapers compromised one of their earliest guiding principles. 17th century newspapers had made a virtue out of their determination to offer their readers the pure, unvarnished truth, expecting the reader to supply his own opinion and analysis. This reflects the growth of a poorly articulated but powerful code of journalistic ethics. Such standards invariably became more difficult to maintain when newspapers were in local competition with each other, as they were in London. By the end of the century, the engagement in politics and the advancement of trench and territorial positions effected a radical change in the character of newspapers. In Europe's news capitals. And this debasement continued apace in the last years of the 18th century. In Paris, the new revolutionary weeklies were essentially propaganda vehicles for a faction or charismatic personality. These cheaply produced but highly profitable ventures had little in common with the 17th century model of the newspaper. While the French um, revolutionary weeklies howled for more victims of the guillotine, the English papers pursued a higher purpose, exposing the sexual scandal of Society London. For this was the age of the Scandal Sheet, a dismal period in newspaper history where London papers explored, not for the last time, the extent to which public curiosity and prurience could be exploited for gain. The model in this brave new world was the Morning Post, of which I show a copy here, a lively venture established in London's West End. The success of the scandal sheets lay in realizing that the Habermasian principle, that the governments have a natural instinct for secrecy, was actually the very opposite of the truth. We have seen that from the 15th century onwards, princes and town councils, went to enormous trouble to put information into the public domain. Whereas journalists have, from the first days, realized that their real power lies in what they choose not to publish. This is a constant of journalistic activity, but 18th century London was the only place where this power was precisely monetized. In London, this system was called selling paragraphs a paper would obtain a story about the antics of a society figure or member of the aristocracy. The victim would then be offered, pre-publication, the opportunity to suppress the story in return for a fee. Should the publication go ahead, there was a further opportunity to place a rebuttal, again in return for a fee. This was a consciousless trade, but the practice became debit a reminder that long use and familiarity can make the appalling commonplace. This descent into scandal and titillation completed the degeneration of the newspaper ideal in 18th century London. At this stage, it was not entirely clear how the trade of news would recover, alternatively subservient to power or hurling abuse at ministers in return for payment. Newspapers found a partial retribution, redemption, in the 19th century, the age where technological innovation and the growth of a mass literate public at last combined to create a true mass market and, and a fully commercialized market for news. Commercial independence at last created a degree of editorial independence, if not from powerful proprietors, who often saw the ownership of the paper as a means to establish their own place in the power structure. The growth of a mass media also made journalism as a profession both attractive and respectable. But it was only in the 20th century that journalism completed this journey towards a professional respectability, as journalism was both studied and taught for the first time. The greatest theorist of the new journalism was the American social thinker, Walter Lippmann, an enormously powerful man. In a seminal work of 1922, Lippmann set out the responsibilities of the new professionalized journalists to organize and explain. Confronting the complexity of modern society, Lippmann doubted the ability of the newly-enprised enfranchised citizens to make sense of the cacophony of events. Journalists would provide the key to understanding, mediating between the complexity of politics and world affairs, and the limited intelligence of the public, that's his view. Now this was known as the gatekeeper function, and it became enormously alluring to a newly emerging professional class of trained journalists, reinforced by the rugged biographies of the 20th century generation of star reporters, such as Martha Gellhorn and Walter Chirard, and the war correspondents. But it did not require great or turbulent events to bring out an instinct of the part of these reporting the news to shape an organized output, often in regime-friendly ways. The most profound development of the news industries of the last two centuries has been the increasing attention paid to domestic politics, virtually a no-go area in the period I wrote about in my book. And it's here that the gatekeeper function articulated by Lippmann has had the most profound organizing and some would argue ethical principle. Lippmann was talking about newsprint, about the newspapers. But the gatekeeper function made a seamless transition to the age of television, reinforced by the small number of outlets, the BBC and the ITV and in the UK, the American networks, the small number of outlets who were competitors, but in some respects an intellectual cartel. Their greatest power was to decide what was and what was not news. This Aspect of journalism, the decision as to what is newsworthy and to to be shared with the public is part of the everyday task of manufacturing the package to be described as news. Now, it's not particularly problemized in the um, foundational textbooks of media studies where the state tends to be presented as the greatest threat to press freedom, sometimes joined in the dock by the newspaper proprietor. In this scheme, the editor becomes the proprietor's somewhat unwilling agent, and the hard-toiling journalist is the victim. Now, this rather alluring presentation seems to me to underplay the agency of the individual journalist. There's every number of reasons why journalists do not report what they know. Some are perfectly proper and show a decent ethical restraint and need to protect sources sensitivity to the privacy of people not normally in the public eye. But tactics, political partisanship, and careerism also play their part. It may be, seem to be a perverse observation in an age of age war to war news, but it seems to me that the greatest power of journalism today lies in not what they report, but in what they choose to keep silent. In the United States, the greatest and most innovative news market since the 19th century, the gatekeeper function in the American press has almost always been exercised to the benefit of government. The refusal to embarrass authority, seen more most re- reluct- most dramatically in a reluctance to report health events which are patently relevant to a president's concept of competence in office, and, and here we see two images of John Kennedy, one as he liked to appear and the other um, as he was. Now, this seems to me to represent a very narrow view of journalistic ethics. Once again, it's partly driven by economics, a desire on the one hand not to offend its own readership, and on the other, the need to cultivate a working relationship with powerful people who ultimately control access to important broadcasting licenses. This recognition of journalistic complicity in the restraints of reporting bring a different perspective to current debates about free speech. It suggests that the debate about free speech, such as we had surrounding the Leveson Report in the United Kingdom, it suggests that this debate is rather more a convenient rallying cry than a real point of contention. The real battle is not the inviolate freedom of fearless reporting but the right to entertain and the limits of decorum and taste in the delivery of that entertainment. And it was issues of decorum and taste which lay at the height of Lord Levison's uh, inquiry, and most of the evidence he heard. Now, in this respect, we can see that the news market has come full circle since the 16th century. In that earlier period, the intrusion of entertainment into news publication through raucous and sensational pamphlets seemed to be the greatest threat to the integrity of the news, sparking first the birth of the manuscript newsletters and then the newspaper as the antidote to this entertainment. In this early modern world that I was describing in my book, to be boring was the guarantee of respectability and truthfulness. Today, to be boring is the kiss of death. Now, entertainment represents the best chance of attracting and retaining a following in an age where so much news content is available for free. Witness here the outstanding success of the Daily Mail Online, which has embraced a celebrity culture for which its print ancestor would have had little sympathy, and, in consequence, is now the world's most consulted online newspaper. Taking a long perspective, the reporting of news can be seen to have fallen into three distinct periods. Firstly, there is the five centuries I described in my book, a multimedia cacophony of pamphlets, broadsheets, and the first newspapers, but also conversation, singing, public debate. Arguably, newspapers were the least functional part of this multimedia environment. And I think it's this multimedia environment we are recreating today. The intervening period, what one might call the long 19th century, the golden age of the newspaper, turns out to be quite brief. Yet it is that interlude that largely established the historical context in which news is discussed today, because it's then that the first histories of news were written, essentially as histories of newspapers. Now in an age of rapid media change, it's very reassuring that historians, unlike 15th century astrologers or modern economists, are not required to foretell the future. Rather like news pamphlets, we can wait until afterwards and then explain why it was always going to be like that. But taking a historical perspective Looking back, for instance, on the last great media shift from manuscript to print 500 years ago, one can say that such great transformative events are always accompanied by a great deal of false prophecy. People greeted print by saying the manuscript was finished. It wasn't. And much of this prophecy comes from interested parties who have invested very heavily in technological change and so have a monetary interest in their prophecies coming true. The first boosters of print, for instance, will always say, oh, print's the new thing, away with your manuscripts. Consumers, on the other hand, adopt, adapt very smoothly to media change. What we do as consumers is we say, we'll experiment, we take what we like of the new, but we don't give up the old. The end of the book, which has been prophesied for as long as I've been an adult, seems no closer than it did 40 years ago because we all still continue to like and buy print. So much of the anxiety about technological change, as we're now seeing in the newspapers, is on the producer's side, since producers are forced to make difficult investment decisions about future events, and they're sometimes rather testy if consumers don't fall into line. Put in the context of the history of news, I foresee a long future for print, and indeed for professional journalism, though it's not necessarily the case that the two will be in the same place. But even so, I think it would not be a bad thing if a very present-orientated profession, like journalism, paused occasionally to take the lessons of history. Thank you very much.